to feel about your influence on others. I don't know if you want to write a scale of 1 to 10, uh, if you want to write some words down, some description. How do you feel about your influence on others? I'm a bad influence. You know, I think I do okay. Actually, you know, I feel kind of like neutral. I don't do anything, do I? On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm a, I'm a 3. I'm, I'm a recluse. I hide. Or... A 10, I'm really persuasive, and I get people to follow me all over the place, even when I don't want them to. You know? Where are you at? Uh, it's, honestly, take a, take a minute and, and think about that. How do you feel about your influence on others? Today's message is influence for eternity. And uh, I've just intro introducing this pastor joel will be coming up after me and um you know yesterday we had our aim meeting which is a leadership meeting it's not just for leadership it's those who want to be involved in ministry uh if you're taking care of babies if you're leading up junior high ministry if you're helping out with silver lining if you're a pastor if you're not when you go to serve you are a leader that's, that's following the model of Jesus, servant leadership. It, though, that the greatest leader is a servant to all. And um, so uh, for those of you who weren't able to make it, the next one's in July. Okay, we do it quarterly. Please, please, please make that a priority to be there. Because we talked about conflict yesterday. And I don't, maybe some of you guys have conflict in your lives. Um, it applied to everybody in the room. And it was, it was good. It was encouraging. And uh, one thing that we didn't get to cover was a core value. At New Life, we have nine core values that, that underlie everything we do. It permeates who we are. It's who we want to be. Um, and one of those core values is influence. It's necessary as a leader, as a follower of Christ, that we have influence. Our greatest goal as leaders is to lead people to the greatness of God. Leader or not, we all have influence on those around us. Leaders just have opportunity to impact a greater number of people to a greater degree. This is a very serious and sobering responsibility. In our personal lives and in everything we do, God is to be exalted continually. The greatest influence we aim for is the influence of the Holy Spirit through us. We are an imperfect, meaning flawed, not perfect. We are an imperfect reflection of who God is. And we must humble ourselves and redirect the focus and devotion of those we influence to God instead of ourselves. So many times we like to take the glory. We like to take the credit for things. And it's so important that we empty ourselves, humble ourselves, and redirect it. It's not about me. It's God. It's Christ in me. You like what you see here? You can have it too. It's not just me. It's the power of God within me. Amen? Um, in essence, we aim to know God and make him known. You may want to write that down. We aim to know God and make him known. This is at the heart of influence. 
1 Thessalonians 2.8. I think we're going to have that on the screen here. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. You know, we're on a mission from God is our, is our theme that we're on right now. And the mission, the greatest mission that God has given us is to go into all the world, preach the gospel. Right? That's the great commission. But not only do we just share God's good news, we share our own lives as well. How are you doing with that? The single greatest factor, and this is where I've talked with Pastor and I talked with Kevin this past week and uh, about influence. And, you know, man, what could we do to have greater influence? And, and as far as core values go, you know, man, some of them we struggle with. Some people struggle with faithfulness. Some people struggle with consistency. They're the Sunday saint, Monday ain't. But they want to be consistent in their life. They're, they're, they're working on that. Some people struggle with excellence. Oh, that's good enough. Good enough is the enemy of your best. And for me, I feel like, man, I wish I could have more influence. I, 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 I wish I could be more influential. And as we were talking about it, it, it came to light, and we saw through Scripture, through just practical life, that the single greatest factor to gaining more influence is to be genuinely interested in other people. Genuinely interested in other people. Gina got on my case. <laughs> Sometimes I just say things um, <clears throat> without thinking. I don't know. Uh, somebody came by and we were just walking. I don't know. We were on a walk with Ava. And guys, you know, just walking by, it's pretty, pretty brisk walk. And he's like, hey, how you doing? I was like, good, thanks. And he just kept on walking. And I told Gina, I, say, I didn't ask him how he was doing because I didn't really care. She's like, Joel. And I was like, you know what? That's honest, you know? I'm not going to fake it, you know? I was like, hey, how you doing? You know? And that's, that's what we do. And, uh, and I, I'm not, you're not going to have any influence in people if you don't genuinely care about them you're not genuinely interested in them, nor will you be influenced if you're not genuinely interested in that person. An old phrase that I'm still trying to work in my heart is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That is when we gain influence, when we actually have our eyes off of ourselves and onto other people. And that is exactly, that's at the core of what God has called us to with the Great Commission. That we need to have our eyes off of ourselves and the gospel, going out and preach the gospel, and making an influence wherever we're at. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. It says, And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. This is the Apostle Paul. Okay, how many of you guys are ready to wave that banner? Yeah, it, hey, 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 you, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Ready? Monkey see, monkey do. Watch me. How are you guys ready to, to run with that? I don't know. That's, that's a, uh, how many times, I don't know. Do you guys feel disqualified yet? Yeah? Well, let me tell you this. As big of a sinner as you are, he's an even greater savior. And his grace is sufficient. His forgiveness covers everything. 
and his mercies are new every morning. You are a new creation. And so that's where our greatest influence in our life should come from the Holy Spirit. I say should because that's not something that comes naturally. We have to be intentional to tune in to the Spirit's leading. There's all kind, there's thousands of voices screaming out for our attention, for our devotion, for us to follow them. And we have to be intentional to tune in to the Holy Spirit's leading. And when we do, let's look at Romans 8, 5, and 6. It says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Hold on. A lot of us are thinking, yeah, control my mind. God control my mind. But we forget that big L word there. Letting allowing. We have to be led. We have to be genuinely interested in the Holy Spirit's influence in our life, allowing him to control our minds. Amen? Are you, is this sinking in? You guys getting this? I'm running through. Um, so as leaders and as, as followers of Christ, we need to be very aware of the influences in our lives, inward and outward. The, the influence that comes in and the influence that we are out. Raise your hand if you guys would say that, you, those of you would say that you're, you're an introvert. You know what I mean by introvert? Extrovert is me, a little social butterfly. Um, I don't know a stranger, really. An introvert is I'd rather hide in the wall. Raise your hand if you think you're... Yeah, you're glad we didn't do hugs, handshakes. That's, that's you. Raise your hand if that's you. Introvert. Okay. According to sociologists, as much as we can trust them, um, according to sociologists, even the most introverted person will influence 10,000 people in their lifetime. God has created us that our lives are woven together. It's not good for man to be alone. And relationship is the very fabric of, of who we are. I would almost sound like cotton, you know, the fabric of our lives. Um, <laughs> and it, no matter what you think about how much of an influence you have, you are leading people. You are influencing people. Every contact you have, it makes a mark on somebody's life. The Bible makes it pretty clear in Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, I'm going to read from my section of the Bible. It's falling apart. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. It says, so take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but will become strong. You know, we hear over and over, keep that up there. We hear uh, over and over today about, yeah, there's fiery trials, fiery ordeals we're going to be going through. But we will be, God, though we pass through the flames, we will not be consumed. Right? Our God is on our side. He is with us. 
And for those of you who feel under attack, for those of you who feel weak and tired, you don't have any, other, any strength left. We have God's grace, who is, which is sufficient, and his strength, which is proven in our weakness. Amen? And we can then take a new grip with our tired hands. We can then stand firm on our shaky legs, mark out a path. Why? Because you follow me as I follow Christ. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame themselves, your influence will help them. They will not stumble and fall, but we become strong. Amen. This is not just like leaders. This is you as you follow Christ. We need to be mindful of those around us. At New Life, we believe that God's purpose for our lives. If you're wondering what your purpose is for living at New Life, we believe God's purpose for our lives is to lead other people to the greatness of who he is. And not just at church. We got to find a way to turn every conversation into a fresh way to reveal God's greatness. Every conversation can be turned around because we all have opinions. We all have experience. And everything that we do, we can make an influence in people's lives. We can bring God into the situation. Um, there's a, a principle that I've grown up with. It's be, then do. I continually talk about influence, and I'm not just talking about our influence on others. I'm talking about God's influence on us, the influence of our peers on us. And so we have to be influenced by God, by the Holy Spirit. And the things that we do will then be influential for the Spirit. Do you guys, you with me here? This is why it's called witnessing. We're not just sharing the gospel. We're sharing the greatness of God that we have witnessed in our own lives. That is what's called witness. I'm a witness. I saw what happened. I can give you a report. And so we are influential when we are first seeking the influence of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives. We then are going to produce the fruit that he has for us. When we're being with Christ, being with him, the things that we do are going to show. They're going to influence other people for God's glory. Many times we look and we got people, I got parents, kind of like, do as I say, not as I do. You know, don't smoke. And we grow up with that. And it's so vital that we be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Some of you might not really know what I'm talking about with the Holy Spirit. Some of you might not even, you, you might question based on what I'm talking about. Man, follow me as I follow Christ. Man, I don't know that I'm even following Christ. Well, good news. We got a 15 question test for you to figure out if you're really a Christian. All right. There's a uh, video we come across. Uh, really like it. It actually kind of starts off, um, he, he's almost like a game show host or something. Uh, he tries to be, um, tries to present the truth in the gospel with a little bit of humor. But it's truth. And I really want you guys to take it in. If you look in your bulletin, there's an insert, and it looks like there's a brick wall behind it. 
people. Um, and this is going to help you to determine, help you to know, are you really a Christian? So let's go ahead and watch that video. Take notes. You can fill in the blanks as he goes. All right. Are you sure you are going to heaven? No, I mean, really, really, really sure. It's time for Wretched. It is imperative that you use God's principle. I actually go ghost hunting. Are you sure you are going to heaven? No, I mean, really, really, really sure. It's time for Wretched. Sorry, technical difficulties. We'll get it in just a second. Hold on. If you don't get all the blanks, I'm going to fill them in. Uh, there's a little halfway point, so I'll give you the blanks if you don't catch them, okay? Are you sure you are going to heaven? No, I mean, really, really, really sure. It's time for Wretched. It is imperative that you use God's principle. I actually go ghost hunting a lot. Yeah, have you found any? Yes. Really? Don't satisfy yourself by saying it doesn't matter. All wolves leave there anyway. Hello and welcome to Wretched. My name is Todd Friel. I am your host with a bad elbow. The wretch the song refers to. Are you 100% beyond the shadow of a doubt certain that you are going to heaven? Let's take a little test, shall we? Todd, let's not. Oh, come on. The Bible says, examine yourself and see if you are in the truth. And based on the Bible, a fellow named John Piper, you know him, don't you, Mr. Desiring God? He found 15 15 questions that we should ask ourselves to see if we are really believers. Let's do that now, shall we? Test question number one, you do good stuff. James, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Make no mistake about it, this is not about work righteousness, doing stuff to get to heaven. But because you've been forgiven and because you're going to heaven, you do good stuff. Are you? Are you doing good stuff? Are you doing things that God asks you to do? Are you being obedient? Or are you kind of lazy when it comes to spiritual fruit? Number two, the necessity of obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you're going to do everything that God tells you to do. There are lots of things that we are supposed to be about the business of. A first of which is not ending a sentence with a preposition. After that, there's a lot of stuff that we should be doing to be obedient because we are saved. Not to be saved, but to prove that we are saved, we're going to do stuff in obedience. Number three, the necessity of holiness. Gulp, Hebrews 12, 14, Rexella. Strive for peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if you're going to see God, you're holy, not 
perfect, but growing in holiness. You're becoming more and more like the Savior if you are saved. Number four, the necessity to forgive others. Matthew 6, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, because you've been forgiven so much, you forgive other people. I know there's a lot of people who would say, well, they have to repent first. I kind of think, you know, I was forgiven so much. I could happily forgive somebody who's done something bad to me because I appreciate what was done for me. Do you forgive people when they do you wrong? That could be a country song. Alrighty, number five. The necessity not to live according to the flesh. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You find yourself desiring something and you kill it because you're a Christian. Do you? Remember what we're doing here. Taking a Piper 15-point test to see if you are actually in the faith. Number six. The necessity of being free from the love of money. Ooh, this is a hard one in America, isn't it? To love money, to love the stuff. Nothing wrong with cash. You need it. You got it. We can do a lot of ministry with it. You can buy stuff. That's swell. You can feed yourself, clothe your family. Thumbs up on that. But when you love it, well, it shows you're not a Christian. You have it in its right perspective if you're saved. Number seven. How are you doing, by the way? The necessity of love to Christ and God. First Corinthians 16. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. If you are a Christian, you love him a lot. In fact, you love him more than anything else, perhaps especially money. You love God if you're a believer. How you doing on the test, by the way? We got, we're about halfway there. Here we go, number eight. Todd, we're exactly halfway there. The necessity to, you can't have half with 15 for real. The necessity to love others. Oh, this one's hard. Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into gulp, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. (laughs) If you're a believer, you love people. Hey, can I just ask you a little question? If we could put one of those little police monitor dealie bobs right on your dashboard and film you while you're driving, would would we see that you love other drivers? Huh? Number nine, the necessity to love the truth. They are to perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Christians love theology. We don't want it squishy and wishy-washy and all wobbly. And Well, you know, it doesn't really matter as long as we're sort of in the ballpark. No, it does matter because we love the truth. Because he is truth and that's what we love. We love him and so we love the truth because he loves the truth. Because after all, he is the truth. I know that's tough for you postmoderns, but he is. Number 10, the necessity of being childlike. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you have a trusting faith. You believe stories like Jonah and the whale and the Red Sea parting. You have a childlike faith that trusts because you know that he is omnipotent. Number 11, the necessity to bridle the tongue. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is in vain. Do you control this little thing that's like a little, like a rudder on a ship? That can cause a forest fire? Do you have it under control? Because if you do, you're a Christian. If you don't, you're not. And number 12, the necessity of perseverance. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, you're a Christian when you die. Pretty much the deal right there. Number 13, the necessity of walking in the light. 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Now, what does it mean to walk in the light? Well, to walk in truth, because Jesus is the light. I sounded like Rob Bell right there. Jesus is that man from Galilee who walked by the shores of the sea, and he was the truth. And we will walk in the light because he is light, because we're Christians. And finally, the number... Oh, it's two more to go for real. That's why you're not a math major. The necessity of repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Remember, the first of the 95 theses, life is a continuing repentance. As God confronts us with our sin, we're continually repenting. It's not just that first time you repent, turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, but constantly repenting. We do that because we're saved. And if you don't, well, then you're not. And finally, here we go. Good one, Friel. The necessity of warfare vigilance, 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What, what Paul's getting to there is he does in other places of Scripture. When we're Christians, we're fighting against the flesh, against the devil, against the world system because they are the enemies of God. So there you have it. 15-point test to see if you're actually a Christian. Are you? This is Wretched. Wow, so how'd you do on your test? Huh? I find there's areas where, uh, yeah, I'm all right with that. I'm okay. I love others, uh, mostly. Uh, We have to kind of qualify ourselves. Let me go through the blanks real quick because there's a second part to this. Let me go through the blanks. Uh, first one was the necessi- necessity of doing good. Doing good stuff, some of you might have picked up on, but doing good. Two is the necessity of obedience. You know these are all reliable. These aren't just good sayings by somebody because they're all backed up by Scripture. You see that? So you can, that's why we saw the Scripture on the, the TV as well, the, on the screen. The necessity of holiness is number three. It's not what we can do to put on. It's what he gives us and he dresses us up. The number four is the necessity to forgive others. Sometimes we think, but we keep a record of wrong, which tells us we might not have actually forgiven. Number five is the necessity not to live according to the flesh. Number six, the necessity of being free from the love of money. Seven, the necessity of Love to Christ and God. That love then, Paul says, compels us. See? The necessity of to love others is number eight. Halfway through, as he said. <laughs> the necessity to love the truth. The necessity of being childlike. By the way, I would say the truth is his truth, not our truth. That's part of the problem in the world today is people are making their own truth and rewriting truth and denying truth. So the necessity to love the Truth, you'll find truth right here. The necessity of being childlike. That's what most people are uh, sometimes, especially the Pharisees. They're too big for their own britches. You ever heard what? I remember saying that to the kids when they were young. Getting a little too big for your own britches. That meant is that you don't know everything. The necessity to bridle the tongue, which means control it. Control the tongue. The necessity of perseverance is number 12. If you're not sure about that, read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. He who endures to the end. The necessity of walking in the light. Those who do deeds of darkness, they they do them in the dark. The necessity of repentance is number 14. 
the necessity of repentance. And before I move on from that one, repentance, by the way, what we do is, I, I grew up in a faith where we, we went once a week. That meant you had to carry that all that week. Let me tell you, the way the Holy Spirit is, he'll convict you of your sins, and it, it might be a, a matter of hours after you did, did it, after you said it, after you had the ad, whatever that was. Could be hours, could be minutes. Sometimes I get a little alert that tells me, don't go there. Now, I might still go there, but he gave me the alert ahead of time. When I go there, I'm immediately convicted, and I say, boy, God, forgive me. That's what you have, open door, open access with God. You don't have to wait. You get to go immediately right before him. And he says, it's First uh, Timothy, I think it is, 2.5, or it's Second uh, Timothy. It says we have an advocate with the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. So we're able to go right directly to him. That's what he's given to you and me, access. And then the last one is the necessity of warfare vigilance. We're in a war. Some people don't know it, and that's why you're getting your tail kicked. So it's time to kind of step up. There's a, a new study out by Lisa Bevere, and it talk, talks about girls with swords. We think of warfare only for guys, but let me tell you, it's important for girls to do warfare too. So anyway, let's go ahead and watch the finish of this portion. Perhaps you're saying, hey, skinny boy with the fluffy hair, you're making me feel kind of bad. Well, we're okay with that. Welcome back to our Wretched, if you are still with us. Doubt it never happens. Honestly, it doesn't. We just took a 15-point test to see if you are a Christian, and maybe you're asking yourself the question, what exactly is... The curve. Can't even tell you how many times I asked that question in school. Uh, what's the curve? I, 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 don't, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's not perfection, but it's absolutely about going in a new direction. Are you sure you are headed in the right direction? And if that little 15-point test made you feel bad, <laughs> wait till you see this. When he speaks about few finding eternal life, he's talking about those, those who profess his name. Among those who call Jesus Lord, few of them will find eternal life. Because we already know these people consider themselves disciples, and they call Jesus Lord, Lord. But their life is not marked by the will of God. And so to sum this up, this is what's being said. Depart from me. Those of you who considered yourself my disciples and even emphatically declared me to be Lord, but you did not commune with me and you lived as though I never gave you a law to obey. I just described American Christianity. The 60 or 70 percent of the people in this country who believe that they're converted because one time in their life they prayed a prayer. I'm astounded, bewildered, confused, baffled when people tell me in America we've 75 million people filled with the Holy Ghost and we're the rottenest nation on earth. Come on. Let me tell you something. Lost men, lost women, which is most of the people. Remember, you there be to find it. 
Oh yeah, there's lots of religious people. Lots of people think they're going to heaven. Lots of people in that day say, Lord, Lord. And he says, I never knew you. What he's saying is, not everyone who emphatically declares me to be Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is not some secret discipleship here. This is not some hidden thing. This is a person who would emphatically say, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. He says, not everyone who says this will enter into the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous with not everyone who says this is truly Christian. Ah, 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 that's scary. By the way, did you notice they're not so emphatic about spelling? So what, what do you do? How do you know that you're really a believer? These guys keep saying, well, all these people who say they're Christians, they're not. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said. A lot of people are deceived. So how do we figure this out so that you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are going to heaven? It starts by understanding who God is. Who, who, who is he exactly? George Burns didn't do us any favors when he portrayed God. Who can you spell blasphemy emphatically? That's not what God is. He's not this doddering deist God just kind of looking down and hoping the kids are behaving. Uh-uh. He's actually keeping, keeping track of you, everything that you do. He is a holy God. He's a perfect God. He's a God who just spoke it into existence. By the way, take a read through Genesis the stars, do you know how many stars there are? There's like a billion, billion, billion stars. Some just ridiculously high number. And there's only one little sentence. Just kind of a little parenthetical remark. And God made the stars also. Like, no big deal to him. He's big and he's high and he's holy and he's perfect. And that's where it starts in understanding his character and his nature. Then we need to take a look at our nature and understand we were born little sinners. And if you don't think that we were born little sinners, and you don't think that there's such a thing as original sin, oh, oh. The suspect is driving through stop signs at about 40 miles an hour, manages to keep control of the car, just what you expect, until, look who jumps out of the car. It's a seven-year-old. A seven-year-old was driving the car. He had, look at the cop kind of lumbering up. He had taken his father's car in a bold attempt to avoid going to church. Look at him, he just takes off into the garage. I don't know where he thought he was going. He was apprehended. Nobody was hurt. See him take off out of he the car? He was determined, but wow. some penance coming his way. But, no, no, I was saying, but what jury would convict him of running from a long sermon in a church at that age? Don't we all remember being Daddy will convict him. Yeah, That's right. Daddy. Well, in the family court. Wow, so much bad theology, so little time. No such thing as penance. Can you guess who the Roman Catholic is? Seven years old to get away from church. Why? Because even at that age, he hates God like we all do, and we all live our lives like we hate God with the sinning, with the disobeying, without praising him, without thanking him. Rebels and hard little seven-year-old fish shakers and 17-year-old and 27-year-old fish shakers, we hate him. But instead of giving us what we deserve, he grants us mercy, but only because his son took the punishment we deserve. And when we understand the highness of God, the lowness of man, the sacrifice of the Savior, it crushes us. We repent, say we're sorry, turn from our sins, flee from our sins, just like that little kid was fleeing from his father. And we put our trust in Jesus. And then we spend the rest of our days joyfully, happily living for heaven. The power of the thought of heaven in the Christian life is that it causes us to live for that which is most important. Rather than living for temporal things that are visible, 
we should always be living for eternal things that are invisible. And living for heaven causes us to live for that which is truly important. It's been well said there are only two things going out of this world, the word of God and the souls of men. And that's where we need to invest our life, into reaching people with the gospel so that they might be on the path that is headed to heaven. And if we'll have heaven ever in front of us, it simplifies our life right now and causes us to live for what is most important. So, is that where your hope is set? On the living God? If it is, congratulations. If it's not, repent and trust the Savior now. This is Wretched. That's Wretched. I don't know. I've never seen the, the, the guy and watched anything. And I can't speak for his all of his theology and all of his stuff that he puts out. But I can speak to that one. I can, I can receive that. Um, how about you? Did it make you question maybe the kind of Christianity you've been living or modeling that maybe you're not so okay? See, we like the blessed assurance. We like the idea that we've got security in God. And what he does when he sets his seal upon us is that it's a finished work. But the truth is, is we're undone, aren't we? You know, it's not, he's not the problem. We're the problem. You get that? So what happens is it should cause us to just say there's an expectation that if you're my disciples, you will take on my look. You'll take on my behavior. You'll take on my qualities or traits. Do you see how that works? You should have then this fruit. Everybody remember the, the tree that he come to, a fig tree, and he expected it to be, have fruit on it? Most of you have probably heard that preached before. It wasn't the season for it to bear fruit. There shouldn't have been any fruit on it. By the season, by the way you would harvest, it it was the wrong season. It's not about the tree. It's about a parable where he's saying that you should have fruit. You and I should be instantly in season. You know what that means? Ready right now. No time to prepare. It's you've so lived it that that's what flows out of you. I don't have to put on my makeup. I don't have to put on a face. It's already there. It's, It's who I am. See what I mean? And that's what, that's what we're, the expectation is, is that every one of us, so stop making excuses for ourselves, for, for whatever bad habits, whatever addictions, whatever attitudes, we have to stop doing that and recognize that God calls us to be like he is. And what is that? Capital H, O-L-I-N-E-S-S, holiness. He wants us to walk in holiness. Amen. All right. We're, we're going to do rapid here because we've got communion. Ready? I'm not actually preaching. I'm just going to highlight something for you. I want you to turn to Matthew. Actually, look in your bulletin. It's in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. This is what it's all about, folks. This is before the cross. I just want to call that out to you. Before the cross, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount made two profound statements. Two profound and prophetic statements. You know what they are? They're right there in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. He says... You are the salt of the earth. Just stop there. Don't read on. You are the salt of the earth. We add punctuation and all that. I'm going to tell you then you can continue from there. But but get that first. You are the salt of the earth. What is salt supposed to do? How many of you use salt? Anybody use salt? 
other than like for the driveway or sidewalk? Use salt. What is salt? It, it changes the flavor, doesn't it? He says, you are my witnesses and I want you to change the flavor. Do you get it? You are my witnesses. You're my little salt shakers. I'm going to talk about vessels in just a second. You're my little vessels and I'm going to sprinkle some salt and you change the flavor of every environment that you're in. Now, he wants you to change that for good. How many don't like stuff that doesn't taste so good, right? I one time put too much salt on. Then that makes it really terrible. Then I ate twice as much because I tried to put more on. And So here it is. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? The very nature of it is it's lost if it's tasteless. You're not born to be tasteless. You're born to, to, to add this seasoning of God into, into, your, into your life, into your realm. It is no longer good for anything if it's lost, if it's become tasteless, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then Jesus makes this profound statement. Before the cross, remember, these are very important that he says, you're the salt of the earth. Then he says, you're the light of the world. What do you mean? I don't have the light in me. I have darkness. This is the generation he comes in. We're just pukey sinners. See, he hasn't died on the cross yet. Oh, yes, he has, sort of. But what's he say prophetically about you and me? He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, here's, here's the deal. A city set on a hill you get it? God places you where he wants you to shine. He puts you on a high and a lofty place. See, some people are always, oh, don't be all conceited. Oh, there it goes his head. Now, wait a minute. That's what God wants. He wants to be glorified in yours and my life. Well, that means he's got to put you on a little bit of a pedestal so that you stand out above the crowd and above all the other people you're supposed to influence. Don't be bringing, busting people down so that you, they grovel down there with the world. Be a cowboy. Get up in the saddle. Stand up in the stirrups so you can get a better view. Those are the ones I need to influence. Those are the ones I need to steer. Those are the ones. Hey, how many heard Rick Warren's son committed suicide? Now, let me just challenge because I already dealt with this. Some look at that as being judgment. Rick Warren is a pastor of a church out in Saddleback. It's called out in in California. 30 some odd thousand people attend that church. It's a major, they've got a campus like unbelievable. And you know what? He's got all kinds of accusation made about who he is and what he's representing and all the things that he might be doing. And um, I don't know about all that. I know this. I know that if that was my son or my daughter, that committed suicide, I would be grieved. And I would question, I'd have a lot of questions. I'd have, I'd have some issues about going forward, so to speak, if I wasn't so grounded in my faith. I'd like to think that Rick Warren won't, won't fall away. If there's anything needs tweaked in his life, I can trust God to complete the work that he began. So here's what let's not do, is let's not proclaim judgment on a man. Let's let that, let that gavel be in God's hand. Can we do that? 
And let's not kick a man when he's down. And so I'm sure that I've already seen it on Facebook. I've already seen it on some posts about people, you know, doing this. And that's the, that to me, that's one of the greatest tragedies of Christianity is that somehow we don't actually come to a place of brokenness even over people. We don't know where the people are at. I honestly don't know everything about every person. But I'm, I'm charged to call, to, to believe the best, hope the best, think the best. Do we always do that? And the answer is we don't because what we do is we try to bring somebody down. We feel like it's our job to expose somebody. Shoot the wounded, yeah. So get, let's just stop that. If you find yourself and people wanting to go there, just say, hey, let's pray for that right now. Pray for this man. Pray for this, this mama. Can you imagine what that's like? Because we've, we've, we've raised our children as good as we could, and we've fought this for 27 years is all he was, 27 years old, and he took his life. The, the worst thing about that, folks, and about suicide is that you know, it, it's all, it, it, it takes us out of the realm of the possibilities that with God, anything's possible. Please, never, never take your own life. Never think about it. If you, you, you can think about it, here's the deal. If you're thinking about it, don't keep that hidden. Get with somebody else. Get with counselor. Get with pastor. Get, let's, let us help you to overcome that, that level of depression. Let us over, help you overcome that lie. Set on a hill but on a lampstand, somewhere to elevate it that it will give light to the house. Let your light, in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, I know that when you put yourself on a pedestal that you're calling attention, you can become prideful and arrogant. I never find that too much of a problem because there's plenty of people willing to slap you down. I'd rather have you go a little bit and, and go there a little. See what I mean? I'd like you to have that kind of boldness and confidence. And, you know, we'll gently correct you and we'll walk with you through those things. But guess what? We need to stop bringing people down. We need to start lifting them up. All right, the last one, getting prepared for communion. In a well, uh, it's Second Timothy 2.20. I'm going to read it out of the message version just for emphasis. Not making doctrinal statements here. I'm just reading it says it in 2 Timothy 2, 20 to 26. In a well-furnished kitchen. How many of you guys have well-furnished kitchens? You know what I mean by that? You probably have uh, powered mixers and you probably have can openers and you have electric devices and you got, like I've got an oven there that I never use, a little one on the countertop, you know, for bagels or whatever. How many of you got a well-furnished kitchen? I didn't see too many hands. I'm thinking you guys are all in poverty somehow. Nobody has good kitchens? Yeah, you got good, well-furnished kitchens. They're not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers used to serve fine meals, others to take out the garbage. Become the kind of container God can use to present any and every kind of gift to his guests for their blessing. This is, this is where we're entering. This is about communion this morning, being the kind of vessel. I love this. In verse 22, it says, run away from infantile indulgence. Run after mature righteousness, faith, love, peace, joining those who are in honest and serious prayer before God. See, in other words, there's a lot of people who are playing around and playing church. And they may not be the kind that if you're going to elevate your spiritual growth, the, the, those people who are just, they're fleshly, they're, they're still babies. 
They're, they're after little toys and games. See, so it sets it up that if you're going to grow, you're going to have to put yourself into an environment where you're going to be challenged to go beyond the, the stuff that, that kids like to do. When I was a boy, I played with boy toys, see. Now that I've become a man, I put away those things. Refuse to get involved in inane discussions. They always end up in fights. God's servant must not be argumentative, but a gentle listener and a teacher who keeps cool, working firmly but patiently with those who refuse to obey. You never know how or when God might sober them up and change a heart and a turning to the truth, enabling them to escape the devil's trap where they are caught and held captive, forced to run his errands. Wow, we, we like doing the will of God. How many of you like doing the will of the devil? Anybody in the room really want to do the will of the devil? I want to say no. Those people aren't in churches this morning. How many of us find ourselves sometimes running errands for the devil? See? I may not want to show your hands with that one. You know what that does? That happens by, by, by sin, by not loving, by the, when you fail the 15-question test at any given point with the dash cam focused on you, Right? At those points, we're running errands for the devil. You know when you run errands for a devil? Let me give you a a clear example. Rumors. Gossip. See? That's when you're running errands. You actually become his voice, don't you? Because it tears down. All right. Here's here's how I summed it up for for, for us for repentance, to experience forgiveness. Here's what it really said in these first in verses 21 through 26. Here's what it says. It says, open the package, take the lid off. That's Matthew. Open the package, let that light shine. Take the lid off, remove the basket. Become his vessel for his glory. Run away from the world, run toward him. Refuse basket case living. How many of you know somebody who's a basket case? Anybody? Yeah, what does that mean? Boy, God help them. They just seem like a basket case. They go from one bad thing to another bad thing that there, there seems to be like no hope. Refuse basket case living. Take a chill pill from being an obnoxious Christian. How many of you need to repent from being an obnoxious Christian? Wagging the finger at somebody. Plan on God. That's what it says. Plan on God. Keep on Trust in God that he's going to do something for us. And the last thing is, be sure you're serving God and not running errands for the devil. Be sure you're serving God and not running errands for the devil. God has a purpose for you, so does Satan. Guess who's we want to to win? Last Sunday, Marcy did a a fabulous job on this song, which uh, Arlene gave me one time uh, through a little whatever it was and Facebook, and and, uh, I love it. It's called I Choose Jesus. And this morning... As we get ready to go into communion, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to make a a fresh profession to choose Jesus. Could we do that? Let me ask you that I'm going to just give it because I see several guests here with us this morning. We don't uh, we don't believe that something that was declared over you when you were a baby is is worth anything for you as an adult. We believe that you have to make a conscious decision about heaven and about who Jesus is. And you have to choose Jesus. It's not something that somebody gives you. It's something that you have to embrace for yourself. 
And so maybe you answered that 15-question test this morning and you failed on a few of them. Maybe you're not doing so good. I'm going to tell you our altar team will be up at the end of our service and we'll have you come up and we're going to pray with you and we're going to believe God for radical change in your life, for a conversion, for a transformation. Folks, if if you're that way, here's what we don't want to do. Maybe you've endured the whole service and, and you thought, wow, that music, that was kind of out there. I'm not used to that. Boy, that was a little loud. Boy, this is a little loud. They're in your face. Uh, let me just tell you that that's God working in our midst. It's a celebration of what we know that we've been redeemed. That our life isn't, isn't what, it never has to be what it used to be. And so what we do is we get to celebrate that. I just want to tell you this morning that if you haven't come to to the knowledge of God that way, then you need saved. You need to be filled with his love and his peace and his joy. And that's not something you can fabricate. It's not something that you you can make a concoction. It's what he brings to your life and he delivers it. That's why it's, it's called a gift. You can't pay enough for it. You, there's nothing, no jumping through hoops for it. The only thing he asks you to do is he asks you to recognize that you're a sinner. He asks you to ask for forgiveness from him and recognize it because he actually took all of our sins on himself. It's called being the substitute. Instead of us getting the punishment, he took it. And yes, because he knew Every sin we'd commit before we ever existed, he forgave you. And I want to tell you, there's no reason for you to leave this church the same way you came in. That's our goal, is that you come to to see your creator this morning, to, to know your savior, that when you leave, you're a changed person. We failed if you leave in the same way that you came in. You should have experienced God this morning in our fellowship, in praise, in, in the preaching. You should be leaving here encouraged and built up and established to go out and let that light shine. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if that's the question that you bowed the knee, and you said, God, save me, then we have open communion, which means you might have received a little packet here. And we're going to open that up. It's got the, the bread on the top. It has the juice inside. It's got a little clear plastic on the top. So when it comes time, you just clear that, that clear plastic first. We'll receive that. And then you'll open up the, from there, we'll open up the foil. But leave that closed for right now. We're going to just do the, the bread. But before we do anything, let's make sure we're right. During this song, as they sing the first stanza, I'd like for you to choose Jesus this morning. Can we do that? Let's just use this as a time of reflection and allow uh, you to minister to us in that song worship team. If you need one, please raise your hand and we'll get one to you.